the wake-up call. Well, we've all had them. Peter had one in Acts 10, and this is the story of the first one of us coming to the faith of Jesus Christ, a Gentile. It's probably true to say that for Luke, the Cornelius story is the turning point which makes the mission of the church a deliberate mission to Gentiles as well as to diaspora Jews and God-fearers. It was not many years after that very incident that Gentiles began to predominate in early Christianity. And the crucial nature of this event is shown by the fact that it is recounted three times and is the crucial matter that brings up the problems at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. We hear the story in Acts 10, Acts 11, and then Acts 15. Positive repetition in a historical narrative where the author has a limited amount of space is a key indicator of what the author deems important. If then Luke was trying to answer the question how Christianity developed from being a Jewish sect to a world religion, the two crucial episodes are the Cornelius story and the story of Paul's conversion, both of which are referred to three times in Acts. So Acts 9 and Acts 10 are the fulcrum, the key events that explain the course that the early church took. Paul's conversion is told first in Acts 9, then in Acts 22, then in Acts 26. And between those comes the threefold telling of the conversion of Cornelius and its implications. Historical narratives should be judged not in isolation, but rather in relationship to the larger story of which they are a part. You might not know how crucial the Cornelius story is for Luke if you didn't read on beyond Acts 10 and discover the story being retold twice more, and in fact interwoven with the story of the conversion of the apostle to the Gentiles, Saul. Acts 9 introduces Saul, and he is commissioned to go to the nations. Acts 10 introduces the first major Gentile convert, and you can see that Luke is quite concerned to explain how a Jewish movement became a predominantly Gentile one by his own day, if not before. Acts itself could be seen as the human response to God's initiative with Paul and Cornelius which allowed Gentiles into Christianity without requiring them to become Jews and to submit to the Mosaic law. We are told at verse 2 of Acts 10 that Cornelius is already a devout God-fearer and a charitable man. In other words, he's already a synagogue adherent. He's not just any kind of Gentile. And he is not a total stranger to biblical religion. Cornelius is told at verse 4 by an angel that God has taken note of his prayers and charitable gifts, and he is given orders to send messengers to fetch Simon Peter in Joppa, who is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner. Now that ought to immediately raise some questions because what we know about the profession of tanning is it produced uncleanness. He's staying in the house of a man who was regularly or even perpetually unclean, who practices an unclean trade, and he doesn't have any scruples against that. And that leads to what's next. 
At verse 9, we are told that Peter goes up to the roof to pray at noon, not one of the usual hours for Jews to pray. And so it points to the devoutness of Peter. Peter, however, has also got the munchies, but at the wrong time of day. Jews normally had a mid-morning brunch and a large meal in the afternoon. Greco-Roman persons, however, did eat at noon. While Cornelius had a vision, God puts Peter into a trance while he's hungry and thinking about food. Not surprisingly, what Peter sees in his vision is potential food, piggies in a blanket. Notice how God uses the natural to reveal the supernatural and provide an occasion for such a revelation. In both cases, God speaks to the one who comes to him in prayer. And shockingly, God tells Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter's response is just as uppity as Paul's was in Acts 9. Remember that Paul, when confronted by the heavenly Jesus, doesn't say, here I am, Lord, take me. He says, who the heck are you? Peter, when he hears rise, stand up, and eat, goes, you have got to be kidding. You must be joking. Surely not, he says, implying that he's not about to do this. It may be significant that the voice says to Peter, what God has cleansed, do not call unclean. What God has cleansed. Notice the text does not say what animals God has declared clean. This is an important point because later Peter interprets the vision to mean that not merely the abolition of food laws are being declared, but that there are no inherently unclean people that a Jew shouldn't be able to eat with. This is important because Paul, Peter will then go on the basis of this interpretation of his vision. And at verse 16, we are told that the command is reiterated three times. There's something about three times. You know, it keeps happening with Peter. Three times he denies Christ. Three times Jesus reconfirms him in Acts 21. Three times he's told, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter is left bewildered by all of this. But the Spirit prompts him to go downstairs to meet his visitors, Cornelius' messenger. Now, why exactly should we see this vision as an example of a wake-up call? There are lots of different kinds of wake-up calls. This one of Peter's is one we need to pay closer attention to. Because, of course, Jesus had already indicated during his ministry that the kingdom was breaking into human history, and as a result of that, a new covenant relationship was in the offing. And thirdly, Jesus himself says in Mark 7, nothing that enters the body, not even Eastern North Carolina barbecue, through the mouth makes a person unclean, rather it is what comes out of his or her heart that makes them unclean. Jesus says this. Now Peter will have heard this teaching but apparently not got the point. 
This is where I say, you know, all of those disciples in the Gospels, they appear more to be like the disciples than the disciples from time to time. Hence the need for the wake-up call in Acts 10. Sometimes the disciples do rather appear like they continually don't give it. So in this case, threefold, rise, kill, and eat. Surely not, rise, kill, and eat. Surely not, rise, kill, and eat. Oh, okay. Jesus, after all, often spoke in parables and in other figurative ways like an ancient sage in order to tease our minds into active thought um, hear me now, Jesus never watered down the gospel. He never dumbed down the message, and he never put the cookies on the bottom shelf. Nope, never. Rather, he wanted his followers to be stretched so that their reach would extend further than their current mental grasp. Hence, the wake-up call for Peter, he should have gotten this message long before. At verse 22, we get new information. Peter was to come and speak to Cornelius. An important factor in the story is the mention and matter of table fellowship. It's one thing for a Jew to maintain a kosher table and invite a Gentile to come and share his food. That would be fine and not a violation for a Jew. But a Jew could not eat in a Gentile's home where there would be unclean food. So verse 23 is not out of the ordinary, nor in response to the vision. The next day, Peter goes with the messenger to some 30 miles from Joppa to Caesarea Maritima. And Cornelius is anticipating the meeting with a per an important person and has called all his relatives, the in-laws and the outlaws, and close friends. At verse 25, when Peter arrives, Cornelius shows him the extreme form of respect, bowing down, doing obeisance, which Peter refuses, saying that such an act should be reserved for God alone. In verse 28, this reveals that Peter has meditated on the meaning of the vision and understood it to mean that no persons are inherently unclean. God is no respecter of persons so he could visit and fellowship even with Gentiles. Now, apparently, he doesn't yet fully realize this means that Gentiles can have a full place in the Christian community. Of course, later, if you read Galatians 1 and 2, under pressure, he backs off from having thick burgers with Gentiles in Antioch, under pressure from the Judaizers, and Paul has to read him the riot act. Verse 34 makes clear the essential message, God shows no partiality. Or as James 2, 1 and 9 says, Christians should not show partiality because God does not. This also means that evildoers cannot expect God will show partiality on the judgment day. Peter stresses that God accepts people from all nations on the same basis if they fear God and do what is right. And he is quoting Micah 6.8 at that point. And then in verse 37 and following, we have a summary of the kind of evangelistic preaching done in the early church. But notice this. Peter's sermon is interrupted by the incursion of the Holy Spirit. Oh, sometimes I wish 
the Holy Spirit would interrupt more of the sermons I've heard in church. The Spirit falls on all who hear the message, verse 44. And the result of this is both speaking in tongues and the praising of God, which may be two ways of saying the same thing. Much has been made here of the parallel to Acts 2, and some have called Acts 10 the Gentile Pentecost. However, the parallels are not exact. There is no mention of foreign languages here, or of hearing in foreign languages. Peter does not deduce that Cornelius and his kin had exactly the same spiritual experience as he had had at Acts 2, but that they had received the same Holy Spirit he and others received on Pentecost. Notice Peter does not say that they spoke in tongues the same way he did in Acts 2. Here, in Acts 10, surely what is meant is glossolalia, speaking in an angelic prayer language, praising God. In Acts 2, the story is about a sudden miraculous ability to speak on a particular occasion in a foreign language, a miracle my students regularly pray for in regard to Greek and Hebrew. Now I'll lay me down to sleep. When I rise, may I speak Greek. <laughs> Peter stresses that it makes no sense to withhold water baptism when these people have already received the Spirit. Water baptism is only the outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual reality. And if you've already got the Spirit, there's no reason to withhold the water. It must be stressed that here Gentiles are incorporated into the church by a miraculous work of God, not because of any planned Gentile mission. The church in Jerusalem is amazed. It accepts Peter's report as genuine but they do not immediately go out and set up a Gentile mission force. This issue would not be fully resolved until the big council mentioned in Acts 15, which probably took place about A.D. 50. What is clear is that the Cornelius episode began a trend that precipitated a crisis that had to be resolved. Let me say that again. Acts 10 begins a trend that precipitates a crisis that the church has to resolve. Isn't that just like God? God's actions in our midst frequently create crises that the church must respond to by changing their views and changing their practice of missions. God is in the business of creating crises to advance the kingdom. And if you are a student of church history, you will know that this happens over and over and over again, there would have been no Methodist revival if there hadn't been a crisis created in the 18th century in England by God himself. Indeed, I would say that sort of thing is happening at Asbury Seminary today. We are having to change most everything to some degree to keep, with a, keep up with a God who keeps leading us in fresh ways into the future mission fields and therefore we must train our students better and differently. The ongoing nature of a continuous narrative like Acts 10 is it affects the way we assess its meaning. We have to read Acts 10 after we've read Acts 9, the story of, of, of Saul on the road to Damascus. And if we had done so, we would have noticed a surprising repeated pattern of how God communicated in visions 
to both Saul and Ananias in Acts 9 to produce the conversion and acceptance of Saul into the Christian fold. And likewise, in Acts 10, there are two visions, the vision of Cornelius and the vision of Peter in order for the acceptance of Cornelius' conversion and admission into the Christian community, which was signaled by his baptism. We are apparently meant to think it takes an extraordinary work of God to move the earliest Jewish Christians in the direction of an intentional gospel mission to the Gentiles. Well, by golly, it takes that for us as well. Too often the church is satisfied with facing the past and saying tradition, 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 and backing its way into the future. The truth is that Christians should be facing the future and saying the future is as bright as the promises of God. The vision and experience of Peter becomes crucial in the all-important Acts 15 council as he gives the key testimony that, should not, that it should not be necessary for Gentiles to get circumcised and keep the Mosaic covenant to become followers of Jesus. Put another way, Gentiles like you and me don't need to become Jews in order to be followers of Jesus. Thus it is right to say that the crucial turning point in Luke's whole narrative is these two chapters, Acts 9 and 10, that happened sometime before A.D. 50. As with the story of the reluctant Moses we looked at on Tuesday, we find in the story of Peter a person who is reluctant, but for a different reason. He's reluctant to associate with Gentiles or to go into their houses until God explains to Peter that the Gentiles are no longer unclean. In both the story in Exodus and in the story in Acts, God has to overcome obstacles to persuade his messenger to do his will. But here, a cautionary word is in order. A Christian reading of the Bible needs to have some sense of what can be called progressive revelation. While it's possible to compare and contrast the Moses call and the Peter call, at the end of the day, there are fundamental differences. The story of Moses is a story of a call and a commission, but not of a conversion. And furthermore, after the commission, Moses is not a Christian. Unless, of course, he's Christian Baal, in which case. But Moses is not a Christian, and it's a mistake to read all sorts of Christian ideas back into the story of Moses. We do this all the time. For example, the angel of the Lord is just, wait for it, the angel of the Lord. It's not Jesus in disguise. It's not Christ in some sort of pre-incarnate state. According to the New Testament, there was no incarnation of the Son of God before it happened in the womb of Mary, Jesus' mother. And early Christians believed the Son of God was much more than an angel. The whole book of Hebrews is set up in its initial chapter to say how much greater than any kind of angel is Jesus. And that should produce an amen. We should not view Moses and various other positive figures in the Old Testament as Christians before there ever were Christians. There is a development of God's people over time. There is also a development of understanding of God over the course of the Bible. The true God is viewed in the New Testament as much more than just the person called Yahweh. Furthermore, 
there's a change of covenants involved between the time of Moses and the time of Jesus and Peter. In the Mosaic Covenant, the laws of clean and unclean are established and clear. Read Leviticus. In the New Covenant, the laws of clean and unclean are said to be abolished, abolished by the teaching or the death of Jesus, or both, apparently. The problem is many of the earliest Christians had not gotten the memo. So we have some early Christians called Judaizers who are preaching the gospel according to Leviticus and not the gospel according to Jesus. In the Mosaic era, if you wanted to be a full member of God's people, you had to get circumcised and become a Jew. And once Jesus inaugurated the new covenant, this was no longer necessary, as Acts 10 through 15 makes abundantly clear. Gentiles could be a part of God's people by grace through faith without keeping the Mosaic covenant. In other words, there'd been a change in covenant and covenant requirements a change accordingly in views about the nature of the people of God, a change in view about the nature of salvation. You had to believe in Jesus to be saved. Even to some extent, a change in the way God was viewed now as a multi-personed being. Luke's narrative reflects all of these changes, and he tries to faithfully show that some of these changes were shocking, unexpected, resisted even by the Jewish followers of Jesus. Indeed, even the leaders of the early Jesus movement, Peter, James, Paul, had to have a conversion involving a conversion of their imaginations in order to be convinced that God was doing something new and unprecedented as a result of the coming of Jesus and his death and resurrection. In Peter's case, he needed to be, he needed to be convinced he needed a new menu and he needed to change his venue to eat the new menu with somebody like Cornelius. As with all such historical movements, some people understood the significance more quickly, more rapidly, more clearly than others, Paul apparently better than Peter before long. The challenge then for Luke, as for persons who wrote down the stories of Moses, was not only to accurately relate individual episodes, but to accurately interpret their relationship to the events that came before and after them, and to accurately interpret the significance of the events for the ongoing life of God's people, Jew and Gentile, united in Christ. This was not an easy task, not least because there was both continuity and discontinuity between the Old Testament stories and the New Testament stories. God's faithfulness to Israel had been seen as a kind of partiality to a particular people. But now Peter is told this, God is no respecter of persons. God is impartial to both Gentile and Jew, and he wants them both to be a vital part of the people of God on new terms. Gentiles do not have to become Jews to do so. A final reflection about wake-up calls. Well, we've all had them, and some are welcome, and some, like the one that came in the middle of the night telling me my daughter was dead in her apartment from a pulmonary embolism, were rude awakenings, unwelcome, and produced a whole series of response that changed our life. What happened to Peter while he was snoozing away on a rooftop was indeed shocking to him as a devout Jew. And it meant he had to change his beliefs 
and behaviors as well. Not merely his evil ways, he had to change his good ways in following Leviticus. And indeed, even after he changed them, we see in Galatians 1 and 2 that under pressure from radical right-wing Jewish Christians, he could be coerced to go back on that I'll have a thick burger with you in a Gentile house thing. So how about you? Have you had a wake-up call lately in your life? Did you hit the snooze button and roll over like Mr. Bean and pretend like it never happened? Did the wake-up call reveal something shocking to you about yourself, your call, your ministry, even your God? In Peter's case, it was the trifecta. All three things needed to be re-envisioned. His call, his vision of himself, his vision of God. Understand then that wake-up calls are not merely attempts to prod you out of your lethargy or get back to work on what you've always done. Wake-up calls require a whole new approach to life, to your call to ministry, to your relationship with God. Can you hear the alarm sounding right about now? I mean, I'm just asking. Uh-oh. Hello? Oh, my Lord. Yes? Yes. Yes, the sermon's almost over. And could you, could you speak in Aramaic a little more slowly, please? Okay. Tell them that you love them and you accept them as they are. Okay. I will tell them that. And remind them what? Remind them that when the call of God comes, not to hit the snooze button. Okay. Thank you, sir. And that's what Jesus said, and all God's people said.